Well, it's good to be back. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was off to a conference for free church pastors and took Lori along, and we enjoyed some sunny weather in Southern California. Um, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. You know, when we got here 18 months ago, it was right before our 25th anniversary, and I just did not have the nerve to ask the leadership of the church, could we take some time off and celebrate our 25th? So we, we had to, we, we did our 25th at 26 and a half years, and it was all good. It was great. Visited some cool churches in California. And you know what surprised me is people in California, I didn't expect this, they all bring their Bibles to church. You know, it's really an interesting thing. The more and more I go to churches, it's less and less apparent that people bring their Bibles. So for those of you who bring your Bibles to church, that is a great thing. For those of you who don't, it's a good thing to do. Just keep centering our lives on God's Word, not only in this hour, but throughout our lives. Um, The other thing I want to tell you about is I get these wonderful updates at staff meeting every week, and they're updates that you don't always get get a feel for. So I wanted to share one of the fun ones that came through this week. It had to do with what was mentioned in the skit about the, the basketball program. It's called Upwards. And I don't know if you knew that there's been 125 kids, another 25 coaches, who've just been spending this, these winter months together learning about basketball, more importantly, using basketball to learn more about God's love for them in Christ. And uh, thanks to those of you who've coached, thanks to those of you who've encouraged your kids and invited their friends to be part of it, because over half of the kids and the families involved come from outside of our church. So what a great way to extend some kindness to the community and more importantly, to share the love of Christ. Wayne was, yeah, that's good. Wayne was saying that um, after, after it was over, he met one of the moms at McDonald's and they hadn't been going to church. And she said, you know what? We, we want to go to church. And our, and our kids, even our high school kids, they want to go to church and we're going to come and, and visit Door Creek. So that's cool. Well, I want to talk to you about reality TV. Does that get you excited, reality TV? I mean, what a bust. Can you believe what's going on? And I never thought it could get worse, but of course it's getting worse. And I think the latest um, move towards the the bottom here is this one called uh, The Moment of Truth. Now, I'll confess that I watch American Idol a little bit, and uh, I don't watch The Moment of Truth, but if you watch American Idol, they're always advertising The Moment of Truth. So a couple weeks back, this gal here, Lauren Callie in the middle, was, was front and center. Her husband's the one bottom right. And um, the, the way the show works is, before you ever get on stage, they ask you 50 questions. They're zingers. And they hook you up to some kind of a lie detector or something like that. And they know what the true answer is. And then they bring you out and they ask you the questions. So you're answering questions to earn money. The more you answer correctly, truthfully, the more money you get. So she's just ready to get $100,000 when... All of a sudden, her ex-boyfriend, who happens to have the same name as her husband, the one on the left is named Frank, her husband on the right is a police officer, his name is Frank, and Frank, the ex-boyfriend, comes out to read the question. And the question is, do you think I'm the man that you should be married to? Yeah, and that was just the reaction of the audience. And um, she says, well, I I need to be honest here. And you need to know that in front of her then, her parents, some friends, I don't know, siblings and her husband are seated right in front of her as she's answering this question. She says, well, I, I need to be honest and say yes. Ah. Going, I, I can't believe this is going. I, I can't believe people are, are actually toying with people's lives and their marriage for entertainment purposes. And she has the opportunity to walk away with $100,000 or to keep going. 
And her husband, Frank, says, keep going. I mean, what else can you say that's going to hurt me? What more could, it, could you do? And there was more. Because the next question was, have you been faithful to your husband while you've been married? Have you had an affair? It wasn't that subtly posed. And she answered in the affirmative, yes, she had been unfaithful in that marriage. And at that point, the camera uh, focuses in on her husband whose face just kind of gets absorbed in, in, his, in his hands. And you just wonder, what is going on? What is she thinking of? And what is this guy feeling that on national TV, in, in, in front of a, a national audience, she would declare that she thinks she should be married to the other guy than you. That she's been unfaithful to you. And I imagine, what is he feeling? You, you got to think he's embarrassed. You, you, you got to think that he's, he's, he's deeply hurt, that there's something that's been ripped out of him in pieces that, that he knows can never quite get back together again. Shock, the anger, humiliation. And I wonder if Frank... The husband asked you for advice the next day about his marriage, his relationship. What, what advice would you give him? And what would you say to Lauren if you were her friend and the next day she woke up and said, oh my word, what have I done? And she wants to make it right. How would you counsel her? You know, the stuff of infidelity, of unfaithfulness, of betrayal... Um, these aren't just the stuff of reality TV. It's, it's the real stuff of this real world that we live in and it happens all the time in what is a very twisted and fallen place. And we find ourselves betrayed and betraying and being unfaithful and having unfaithfulness brought to us. And it happens in marriages. I don't know if you know the statistics. It's... It's hard to pin down, apparently, because it goes anywhere from 24 to, to 60% of men have had an affair, married men, to 40% of women. I, I don't know what the real numbers is, but it's staggering. Unfaithfulness is not only found in the marriage relationship, it's found in our family relationships. I think kids feel that way when moms and dads split up, and they, they feel like, well, what's happened here, you guys? It's just you left me out to dry. It's happening in friendships where you feel like somebody just totally burned you, traded you in for a new friend, or totally betrayed you. It happens in the workplace. So you go into work, and the next thing you know it, you've been told to pack up everything that's in your desk, and you walk out with a banker's box, and it's over. You go, I I just gave my life bud to this place for a lot of years and I got this little severance contract that's going to hold me for a few months and a box of my possessions. It happens this time of year as people are filling out their IRS forms, or should we say maybe not filling them out or not filling them out truthfully. It happens in the sports arena. We're seeing the investigations and the drug use and, and all the things to get that competitive advantage. It's happening nation between nation as they drop agreements and they feel like they're breaking and they haven't been faithful to the terms. 
It happens to a whole group of people in society. You know, we don't even know what it's like. Where every day they wake up and they feel like, whether they're poor or someone of color, where they feel like, it's just stacked against me. This land that promises me freedom and the pursuit of happiness, it's betrayed me. It's not giving me that. It's tough stuff, and it walks into our, even our relationship with God. Well, today, we have this interesting glimpse, this fantastic glimpse into the life of Jesus as he's betrayed. And how does he deal with it? And um, let me just say right from the get-go, this is our story. This isn't just a a story in history that goes way back 2,000 years. This is our story, and I hope you can see your part in this story as we find it here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. So grab your Bible. If you didn't bring one, grab the one in the rack in front of you. And as always, if you don't own a Bible and like one, we'd love to give you that one that's right there in front of you. Just take it home as you seek to learn more about who God is. So in Mark chapter 14, you can find it on page 720 in that Bible that we have here. Look down to verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. Well, as we've been walking with Jesus to the cross, we've been noticing he really is into the details. Into all the details that surround his impending death. And he's into the details of this celebration, this Passover. It's the pinnacle of all the feasts that were celebrated once a year in Jerusalem. It was one of those that you had to celebrate in Jerusalem. And it was associated with that feast of unleavened bread that went on for seven days. And on that very first day, they celebrated the Passover. What was the Passover about? The Passover goes way back, a couple thousand years before this time as we're reading the account here, when God sprung his people out of Egypt and rescued them. And it has everything to do with those 10 plagues. The 10th plague the angel of death. That angel is going to come, God tells his people. And the only way you're going to be spared from that angel of death visiting your house and taking your firstborn son or the firstborn of all your cattle is if you sacrifice a year-old spotless lamb and take the blood and then you apply that blood over the doorposts and the jams of that door, then when the angel sees the blood, he will pass over your house. It was on the heels of that dark night that God led his people out of Egypt into freedom and into the promised land. So this is the meal that they're preparing for. And that meant they needed to find a place. Jesus already taken care of the place. He said, the way you're going to get to the place, you see the guy with the the jar of water. We're all going, man, I would think there's like a lot of guys walking around jars of water, right? No, actually not. Mostly that was a woman's job at that time in that culture. 
So to see a man carrying a jar of water, that was kind of easy. Okay, that's the guy. You follow him to the master's house, and there, there it was, just as Jesus said, the room. And so then they went and got the stuff, the bitter herbs, and they got the wine, they got the lamb, and they got the unleavened bread, and they got the sauce and all that would make up for this meal, and they get it together. And the historians tell us that what would happen on that day, the 14th day of the month of Nisan, is you would take your lamb down to the temple, and you'd bring it and you'd give it to the priests. He would take that lamb and he would kill it and slit the throat and the blood would be caught in a bowl. And the bowl would be passed from priest to priest on down the row until finally the blood was poured out over the base of the altar. Then they would cut out a portion of fat from the lamb and offer it as a burnt offering on the altar. And then they'd take that lamb home and they'd prepare it. They'd roast it so that after sunset that night, the family would gather together to eat the Passover meal. The father would begin the feast with an opening word of thanks and prayer and lift up the first of four cups. After that, they would eat what we would think of as like hors d'oeuvres or appetizers. It was, the, it was the part where they ate the bitter herbs, all symbolic of the 400 years of slavery back in Egypt. And then the youngest son would ask his father the question, what does all this mean? And then the dad would recount all the history of God's mighty deliverance from Egypt. And then after that, there was the second cup. And then after the second cup, the main meal, the, the unleavened bread and, and the lamb. And then after that, the third cup, the cup of blessing. And there was a, a prayer of thanksgiving, probably the very cup that Jesus held up after dinner when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's where they were in the, in the celebration. And they would sing these hymns, these songs that came right out of the Psalter from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Those were the songs that they sang of God's deliverance, his mighty act of saving power. And then they would sing those songs, drink from the fourth cup, and the celebration would be over. A lot of scholars believe that those fourth cups, which aren't four cups, which aren't mentioned in the Old Testament, really are rooted in this tradition and understanding that God had made a fourfold promise in Exodus chapter six, verses six and seven. First promise is, I'm getting you out of Egypt. Second promise, I'm going to take you. I'm going to adopt you as my family. Third promise is, I'm going to be your God. And fourth promise is, I'm not just getting you out of here, but I'm getting you a far better place. I'm going to take you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So look down at verse 18, and we pick up the celebration now of Passover. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, and by the way, they didn't sit at the table. As Tom said last week, they were like lying down in their couches, like on their elbows, perpendicular to the table. That's how they ate their meals back then. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, and here's the bombshell. You ever been at a dinner when someone dropped a bombshell? It's, just, it's like you're not expecting it at a dinner. This is the bombshell. They were not expecting this on the night of Passover. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One who's eating with me. That is a close friend. They were sad, and one by one they said to him, it's Judas, right? No, they didn't. One by one they said, surely not I. Is it me? Is it me? It's one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. 
Well, the bombshell here is they, they'd heard Jesus hinting at, and it wasn't so subtle, but they still didn't get it quite, that he was going to be handed over to religious leaders who were going to beat him and persecute him and ultimately kill him. And he was going to rise again on the third day. They'd heard that, but now they're hearing that actually one of their own from the inner circle is going to hand him. That's what the word betray means, to hand him over to the religious leaders who actually are going to do that. And they're shocked. And we're amazed that they don't point out Judas. But I hope we find it very instructive of what they said when they knew the nature of their own hearts enough to say, I know I could do that. I don't want to do that. But I know my own heart. I could do that. And they each asked, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? I think the thing that wasn't so good in all of that was here Jesus is talking about his impending death and all they're thinking about is themselves. But you know, I, I think it's a, a dangerous thing for us to hear things and I'm sure we've all done it. I know I've done it. And, and say or think, I would never do that. I'd never do that. I think the better way to say it is with the help of God, I'll never do that. By the grace of God, I'll never do that. Because what I know about my own heart, what I know about the hearts of many people as I've been a pastor for a while is a lot of us have done things we thought we would never do. We would never do it. I mean, it's exactly what Peter's gonna say in just a bit when Jesus predicts that they're all gonna fall away he says, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. And Peter, Jesus says, yeah, you are, Peter. Yeah, you are. Well, look down at the text and notice the irony here. Because what they're doing is they're celebrating the Passover. And that this is God's deliverance from an enemy. And while this is going on, Judas is plotting to hand Jesus over to the enemy. This is unbelievable irony that John 13 tells us in the midst of this meal, this is the meal when Jesus gets up, takes off his outer cloak, and he wraps himself in a towel, and he gets down and he starts washing the disciples' feet. This is the same meal, which means that he washed Judas' feet. You ever thought about that? Oh, what a huge expression of his love of his mercy and grace to this one who would hand him over to those who would drive a nail through his feet and here he is washing off Judas's dirty feet. Well, he doesn't just predict Judas's betrayal. Look down at verse 27. He goes on. He says, you'll all fall away, Jesus told him. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's from Zechariah chapter 13. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I'll never do that. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. So, here they are. He drops the bombshell, and here's what we're clued into. Jesus is completely aware of all that's going on. Remember Tom's message last week, how you don't always know what's going on below your very feet? Well, Jesus knows everything that's going on. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter's going to deny him three times. He knows that Peter, James, and John are going to fall asleep three times in the garden. He knows that they're all going to fall away. Verse 50 and 51 say that's exactly what happens. In his greatest hour, as he's about to be arrested, they all fly out of there. 
There's even mention of a streaker here in verse 51. He knows it all. He knows what's going to happen. And the amazing thing is he doesn't do what we do. Knowing about their unfaithfulness, knowing about their their betrayal, their, their impending denials, he remains faithful. You ever been betrayed by a friend? I mean, really got it in the back. Ever happened to you? Did you have a clue what's coming? I bet if you did, your reaction was to protect yourself and move away from that relationship. I, I bet if someone could have told you, 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 you may not have believed it at first, but you were looking at that relationship with new eyes and there would have been a growing suspicion. And yet, Jesus does the exact opposite. He, he's not moving away and he's not moving toward them like Peter does. I mean, a little later in the story, you've got Jesus that night then being arrested in the garden. And how does he get arrested? Because Judas shows up with the religious leaders and all the temple guards. And the torches are glowing, but it's so dark that the, the deal was this. Judas, you lay a kiss on the rabbi, Jesus, so we'll know we got the right guy. And he comes up to Jesus, who calls him friend, and he greets him with a kiss. And we know enough about Peter to know his blood was boiling. And it's not in the text, but here's what I think happened. Here's what I think happened. That Peter put it together in a nanosecond and said, this, this, is, this is the guy. I can't believe it. It's Judas. It's Judas. He's not here with, with us. He's with these guys, the enemy. And he's betraying him with a kiss. Dirty dog, he grabs his sword. I think he's going for Judas's head. He ducks, and Malchus loses an ear. I think that's what happened. I don't know that for sure. It's the interlinear version. I'm reading between the lines. But you know what? That's our reaction, isn't it? We're betrayed. We're hurt. Just want to strike back. Just want to run away. Jesus doesn't run away and he doesn't strike back. The amazing thing is he keeps pressing to the cross and all of a sudden he does something in the midst of this Passover celebration that is revolutionary because everything that's been going on throughout the history of God's people is the feast is always looking back to the past, to that first Passover. And now all of a sudden, he reorientates his followers to the meaning, the full meaning of Passover. That it's not just a look back, that it's actually a look forward. And all of a sudden he takes the bread, that unleavened bread, and says, it's not just about what happened back in Egypt when you didn't have time to add the yeast. This bread now is about my body. So look down. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so the bread is now broken and he says it's about my body. 
My body that's going to be broken on that cross, it's going to be pierced, it's going to be crushed, it's going to be bruised and battered and bloodied, and that body is going to suffocate through Roman execution, crucifixion. This bread now is about me, and this cup is about my blood. It's no longer about the blood of that lamb back at Passover time. It's no longer about the blood of the bulls that sealed the first old covenant. It's now about my blood that's going to seal the promises of the new covenant. The new covenant is given to us in Jeremiah. You see, the old covenant and the new covenant are both given to us, and it didn't catch God by surprise. But the terms of the old covenant were to help us understand that we needed something profoundly different because we couldn't do it. What were the terms of the old covenant? God says, I want to have a relationship with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Here's what it means to be my people. I'm going to give you my commandments, just like he did to Adam and Eve. You keep the commandments, and we have a relationship with each other. You break the commandments, and you've severed the relationship. And what happens throughout the history of the Bible here is we keep breaking the covenants. We keep breaking the law. And so we go back to Jeremiah 31, and we find that God promises a new covenant. What's new about the new covenant? Well, let's look at it. Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why not? Well, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, though I was faithful to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's not now in tablets of stone. And I will be their God and they will be my people. There's nothing new of that. No longer will a man teach his neighbor a a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Oh, that's major new. That's major new. So both covenants deal with our relationship, but both covenants have different terms. The term of the old covenant was, it's got to be sealed in the blood of animals. The terms of the new covenant are now sealed in the blood of Christ. Now, the word covenant isn't a word that we use a lot unless we're maybe a lawyer. We deal with covenants. But the word covenant means, at its core, to cut. And so when people made these legal promises to each other, what they would do is they'd take an animal and they'd cut it in half. And then the two of them would make their promises and you'd hold hands or whatever, walk side by side through these two pieces of the animal that you've cut in two. Symbolic of this, if I don't keep the terms of this covenant, may what's happened to this animal happen to me. Now it's interesting, we'll use that same word cut when we say cut a deal, right? It goes back to this whole idea of of covenant. And so the old covenant was sealed in the blood of bulls and of goats, but the new one in the blood of Christ. The old was conditioned on our obedience. The new is unconditional. The Old Testament sacrifices couldn't satisfy. That's why they had to be repeated year after year. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says that those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4. 
And so they were always looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice offered up by Christ as he was the perfect Lamb of God, Son of God, who did what we were unable to do. He kept the terms to keep God's commands. Perfect. Not only that, the old reminds us of sin, the new reminds us of forgiveness. The old is written in stone, the new written in our hearts. Ezekiel's talking about that in chapter 36 when he writes of this new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, God says. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so the scriptures tell us the old is out. It's obsolete because Christ is superior and what he's done is superior and the terms of the new covenant are superior and it tells us why it's superior because it's founded on better promises. What are the better promises of the new covenant? It's God's promise to forgive us. It's God's promise to change us from the inside out. What was wrong with the old is our promise to say, God, I'll do it. I'll do it. And how many times, how many times have we made those promises to God and to others? I'll do it. And it doesn't take very long. We realize I didn't do it. I did just the opposite. Paul, writing in Romans 7, talks about I do the very things I don't want to do. I do the very things I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. Wretched man that I am, who can save me from this mess? He says, thanks be to God. For Jesus Christ, he's the one. He's the one. So the moment of truth, that episode ends with this question. Lauren, do you believe that you're a good person? How do you work that one out in your own life? Do you believe you're a good person? I think most of us, if we're honest would kind of use a, a qualifying adjective like pretty, pretty good, pretty good. But there wasn't room for adjectives. It was either an affirmative or a negative. What's your answer, Lauren? She says, yeah. She says, yeah. Well, the way it works out on the show, there's this computer voice, and it says the answer is... True or false? So there's this pause. The answer is, everybody's waiting, false. She's lost $100,000. We go, that's the least of her worries. Probably lost her marriage, lost her reputation. Who knows what else? The Bible says... The same thing to us than that was said to Lauren, we're, we're not good. In fact, the Bible says there's no one good but God alone. It doesn't mean that there aren't some things that are good some of the time. It just means that when you understand good for intrinsically good in every area with every thought and every motivation and every word, and it's not all good. It's not all good. So what would Jesus say? I asked you what you would say to Lauren. What would Jesus say to Lauren? I think what Jesus would say to Lauren is what he'd say to all of us. It's, Lauren, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know the mess you're in. I love you. I care for you. I want you to know that you're not the first person who's done that to me. 
the very closest men in my life either betrayed or denied or just flat out deserted me. And I want you to know that when I went to the cross, I went for you too. And that you can know forgiveness and you can know peace and you can not only get it right with me, but through me you can get it right with Frank, your husband. And you know, for some of you, you haven't really heard a whole lot of what I said ever since the first time we mentioned infidelity or unfaithfulness or betrayal. Uh, your, your mind has just been stuck in that situation. You haven't heard much. And I think it's really important that you hear today that Jesus, in the face of his closest followers' unfaithfulness, kept pressing to the cross, faithful to the Father's will, and that what he did on the cross trumps anything and everything that you and I have ever done. And so if you've got this, this like thousand pound weight on your chest, it's the thing called guilt, and you go, I don't know how to get rid of it. I, I know who can get rid of it. You just give it to Christ. You trust that he died on the cross for that. And for those of you who go, I don't know how I can get on with my life because the hurt, it's like been a couple of years and I keep bumping into it. It really hurt me. This person's so close to me. You know, I want to move on with my life. I don't want to keep bumping into this thing. What I know is this, that when you find God's forgiveness, he'll give you the daily grace to start extending that to the people that you and I would say at a human level, they don't deserve it. And in doing that, you free yourself up from a life of bitterness to being able to live and grace other people's lives. Some of you walked in this room and you kind of came in dragging. I mean, you didn't want to be here because you're mad at God. You really feel like God's deserted you. He's abandoned you. He's been unfaithful to you. And it all goes back to this crisis in your life, this hard thing. Was it a divorce? Was it unfaithfulness? Was it a bankruptcy? Was it a financial, a job situation with a child, a brother, a sister? I don't know. But, but you feel like, man, if God cared about me, then he would have met me in this crisis. And I don't think he has. And your feelings are shouting out that which isn't true. God doesn't care about me. He's abandoned me. And I hope as we go back, to this story and go back to the table right now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that we will realize in a more profound way than ever before that couldn't be further from the truth. We are the people that deserved having our heads whacked at. And Jesus embraces us with his outstretched arms nailed to a cross to say, I love you. And we don't get it. We don't get it. But we can have it through faith in Christ. So as we come to the table, this is a table for those who know Christ and love him. This is a time for us to remember and be strengthened as we remember God's unbelievable love for us that when we didn't deserve it, he sent his son to die a cruel death on our behalf. And as we pass the elements, I encourage you to hold them, to take them together, 
as they're nested each the cup and the bread together. And then just prepare your hearts as we sing and we'll have a time of quietness right now even as we pray. So as we pray, let's confess who we are to God. Let's find his forgiveness. Thank him for that and revel in his love. Let's pray. Lord, you, um, you know who we are. And maybe this morning you're helping us understand who we are a little better. We're, we're, just, we're just like the 12, unfaithful. And we bless you for not doing what we did to you but faithfully extending your mercy and grace and forgiveness at the price of your son. Lord Jesus, we love you for that. You're the greatest, the greatest lover of our souls, of our lives, of this world. And we worship you and we ask for your forgiveness and mercy as we consider our sin and just our ongoing, maybe it's denial, maybe it's desertion, maybe it's just neglect. And just ignorance. Forgive us, Lord. And give us new hearts. Take the stuff that's hardening, calcifying, take it out. And may your spirit just bring life, new life to someone today who's understanding for the first time what you've done for us. And a renewed sense of joy for each of us who've known you. That we might go from this place renewed in grace and in your faithfulness ready to serve you with our whole hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.